Having a baby is one of the happiest times in most mothers' lives, but sometimes it can be the most difficult. And it was very painful, but in the end, it was worth it. And everything that I could possibly do, I was going to do in order to give him the best chance at life. That's kidney donor Clarissa Lee talking about her son, two-time kidney transplant recipient and kidney patient advocate Austin Lee. I'm Monica Fox, kidney transplant recipient and Director of Outreach and Government Relations for the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois. On this episode of The Journey Continues, Austin and Clarissa are sharing how their family manages chronic kidney disease and is making a difference in the community. I'm so happy to have you guys. So Clarissa, how was your pregnancy with Austin? My pregnancy with Austin was a surprise. Our family was living in Germany at the time and um, had four kids. And we were almost ready to leave Germany to come to the United States. We had about a year left to go. And that's when I found out that I was pregnant with Austin. It was kind of an exciting time, but it was also a little scary because I'm overseas by myself with no real family support other than my husband and friends that you know you meet in the military. Getting the news that I was going to have a difficult pregnancy uh, or that I was facing a challenge with my unborn son was very, it was, it was, it was kind of devastating. It kind of rocked our world a bit. I can imagine. Can you tell me a little more about that? Well, when I found out that I was pregnant, I wanted to have an ultrasound done, which is something kind of routine, but the doctors were pretty much thinking, oh, you look like you are, you know, on target, on time, everything looks good. There's no need for an ultrasound. Because I was adamant about having an ultrasound, and the reason why I was adamant was because I just wanted to have a picture. I had a picture of all my other pregnancies. I wanted one with this baby. I pressed the issue, and so they finally relented, and we had the um, ultrasound done. And lo and behold, I got a call from my husband. The hospital had called him and asked him to bring me back in. And that's when, you know, things started to just get a little rocky. Wow. So you pushed to have an ultrasound just because, you know, we moms, we want we want things to be equal for all our kids. I have a picture with my other four and I want that for this one. And it turned out to be something so important that you had done. And because uh, I did do that, I got to um, find out that there was an issue with uh, within his abdomen that they were not sure what it was. It was a really big mass in the middle of his abdomen and they weren't giving me much hope about what could be the problem. And so what did they, they tell you your options were? Well, strangely enough, military doctors kind of uh, asked me, well, how many kids do you guys have? And at that time we had four and I guess they figured that I had enough. <laughs> that was a strange question to ask me, you know, because what they really wanted to say was you needed to terminate your pregnancy. That was the recommendation was for me to terminate my pregnancy. And that was not an option. That would never be an option for me or or my family. How did that make you feel when they gave you that as an option? That was one of those where your mouth falls open and you're like, you don't even know what to say. <laughs> yeah, you're you're kind of dumbstruck. Like, I I can't, am I really hearing this? And being a young mother, and and even with a large family, it just, 
it was never an option. And it, it was, um, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do everything I can for my baby, fight for his life and do whatever I can. What a situation to be, to be faced with and to be out of the country. So how did you move forward beyond past that? Well, um, once we decided that, you know, we're going, we're going to do whatever we can do to, um, give our baby the best chance at life. I was uh, recommended to a German doctor. Like I said, we were in Germany. So the German doctor, he actually gave me a lot of hope. He gave me so much hope. I had to go through some painful procedures. You know, I consented to do that because it was going to give him the best uh, opportunity at a a live birth, basically. The American doctors kind of gave me Things like they took, they told me things like, you know, he, he might be stillborn. He might, you know, he might be severely uh, mentally uh, challenged. There were several things that they, obstacles that they placed before me, but um, the German doctors never once gave me those. He always, <laughs> the German doctor always gave me hope. And so I, I went through the painful procedures of having the mass that they saw was actually a, the, his bladder that was so very full that they wanted to extract some of the fluid from his bladder actually to relieve him as well as to test the fluid. And then they also want to do a um, amniocentesis so that they could tell if there were any, any other um, things going on with him at that time. And it was very painful, but it was worth it. In the end, it was worth it. You know, everything that I could possibly do, I was going to do in order to give him the best chance at life. Amazing. Amazing things that a mother will do for her unborn child. Austin, how does it make you feel when you hear your mother tell the story of all that she went through even before you were born? I felt like on this day going forward um, in my whole life, I felt like my mom has been a a personal uh, hero to me for um, giving me life and also saving my life, making the decision to donate her kidney to me. Uh, you know, it. I feel like it does take uh, a special firm uh, believe in your in your faith uh, when when your back is against the wall to kind of make a decision. Um, already knowing that you have, you know, four previous kids, and you have um, one on the way with a, a life threatening illness. Uh, I just thank her for that every day. And I use um, pretty much that decision that she had to make um, thinking about that. Um, it, it just kind of inspires me and gives me um, extra hope and motivation, you know, just to continue in to go out there and help other people who may have been in that same situation. That's great, Austin. It's You're a lucky guy to have your own personal superhero as your mom. So Clarissa, what was it like after Austin was born? It was it was kind of scary. We were blessed with a healthy child, full term. But the night after I gave birth to him, the doctors came and uh, came into my room and told me, you know, we really feel like you need to go to the U.S. with the baby and have him seen by the American doctors in the U.S. So we're going to send you to... Um, Washington, D.C., and you're going to go to Walter Reed. We're sending you to Walter Reed um, Army Medical Center. You know, after having just given birth and, and then having to, within a week, board a plane with your your newborn baby and leave your 
other children and your husband behind. No, I, he couldn't go with me um, at that time because we were in the process of um, moving. And so he had to stay behind with, with the other children and, you know, take care of home. And so I was by myself and it was scary. It just so happened that um, my father, who was a, a minister, uh, knew some people who lived in the area where we were going or where I was going. And so I had, I had previously met them. And so I let them know I'm coming back. <laughs> they opened up their home to me and um, I stayed with them. The flying to the U.S. from Germany, I was on a medical plane with other sick people. Family members were you know, being taken to other hospitals in the U.S. And my baby was one of them. I got to keep him with me the whole time on the flight. But as soon as that plane landed over on, on Andrews Air Force Base, as I looked out the window of the plane, there were like ambulances and ambulance and buses lined up on the flight line. People came onto the plane to get my baby. <laughs> they were calling out names and they called out Austin's name. And of course I had to let him go. And that was really scary. You know, they called out his name and they just came and they whisked him away and they said, Oh, we'll see you back at the hospital. And here I am in, in, in a place I've never, you know, I've been before, but not by myself and not in this condition. So it was, it was the beginning of something really uh, scary, but um, I knew that he was in good hands. How old was he at this time? Just days old? One week old. One week old. I can only imagine how you felt as a mother of a one week old at that time. That had to be one of the hardest, if not the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. And so from there, they took him to the hospital and started to do tests. When? How long was it before you knew that he had an issue with his kidney and needed a transplant? In the beginning, what they did was, because of his issue, the issue he was having, I met with a urologist, and the urologist was very um, informative. He just drew pictures and showed me different things about Austin's um, urinary system. And what he had to do was he had to perform what they call a ureterostomies. So he had both of his ureters brought out to his back. So he had two holes in one on each side of his back to, that would allow for his bladder to empty because that was his problem. He had posterior urethral valves and, and that caused the backup and his urinary system and caused the um, pressure on his newly forming kidneys when he was in, in my womb. So what they did was they performed the ureterostomies, allowed the urine to no longer back up, but to flow out of his back into, a, uh, into his diaper. And so that was the first part of getting him relief and then just kind of stabilizing him over several months. He, he stayed very sick. He was diagnosed as failure to thrive because of not being able to take in enough nutrition. He was constantly projectile vomiting, things like that. He stayed sick so much. He developed what they call rickets, which very rare now that kids would have that, but because of the lack of minerals and and, and his nutrition and his bones, it caused a lot, a lot of issues with, you know, with his uh, development. So he didn't walk on, you know, on time. He kind of bounced around on the floor like a quadriplegic, you know, like a little quadriplegic on the floor. That's how he would get around and then would be very sick, you know, throwing up a lot. Um, so it was, a, it was, it took some time before they actually said, okay, I guess within 
six months or so, it was apparent that he was definitely going to need a kidney transplant. I was the first one to say, okay, I'll give it to him, you know, whatever he needs. But it, it took some time before we were actually able to actually do the transplant. We went through a lot of obstacles even with that. Did he have to spend any time on dialysis as a as a baby? Yes, he did. About, I would say about a year, uh, uh, when he was about a year old, we were introduced to peritoneal dialysis. And my husband and I were trained to administer it at home, uh, which he would stay on a... Um, the peritoneal machine during the night. He would be on the machine every every night for eight, nine, ten hours sometimes. And that was as, you know, as a baby. He had a dialysis machine in his room. He had a heart monitor in his room and he had a feeding tube, uh, a, a feeding machine in his room. And sometimes there were nights when all three of those things would be alarming at the same time. He'd be throwing up and, and the tube would be coming out of his mouth and the heart monitor would be going off and the, the peritoneal machine, he, it would get kinked up some kind of way. And so it would be, that was our life for a couple of years. There were very uh, intense nights sometimes when, when that machine would go off, when all three of the machines would be going off at the same time. Wow. Not the accessories and decor that you plan to have in your infant's room. Not at all. And he shared a room with a brother. How did this impact the rest of the family, his siblings? Well, because a lot of my time was spent um, back and forth going to the hospitals. Um, they they had to kind of pitch in, you know, older siblings had to watch younger siblings. And so I was gone a lot. But when Austin would be home, they would help out with him a lot. Sometimes they'd run to get him certain snacks that he would like, or, you know, they'd play with him. It took care of him, basically. They pretty much mothered him. He was everybody's favorite. <laughs> he was everyone's favorite. Everybody looked after him. Austin, so how's your relationship with your siblings now? You're the youngest of five. Sounds like everybody has looked out for you over the years. What's your relationship with them like now? I'm still very close with my my siblings. Being the youngest, they still consider me to be like a baby to them, even as an older adult. But I appreciate, you know, even even now being out on my own, sometimes my, my sister and my older brothers are always, you know, checking in on me to make sure, you know, that my health is, is doing well, that I'm eating right and that I'm just taking care of myself. And that'll, that'll always be something that affects, you know, the rest of my life and that I'm very appreciative for. Clarissa, you stated that when they mentioned that Austin needed a transplant, you immediately knew that you would do whatever you could to be his donor. How was that process for you preparing to become Austin's kidney donor? The process was very lengthy. The first part of the uh, process required that I lose at least 100 pounds. I was told by um, the doctor who was going to perform the transplant, it was a urologist at Children's, that he wanted me to lose at least 100 pounds. Now, if, you, if you've ever met me uh, or have ever seen me, I'm very tall. I always say I'm 5'11 and a half, but more, more like probably six feet. At that time, I was well over 200 pounds. The first thing he asked me to do was to lose the weight. So my life consisted of going to the gym 
morning and evening. Every weekday I would go. In the morning, I would go, I'd get on the treadmill, I'd get on the um, elliptical, I, you know, I'd do just just doing this things myself. And then I was watching what I was eating. And, you know, little by little, the weight was coming off. Even during that process, I was, you know, having the tests done, also having the consultations with the psychologists and, and, and you know, making sure that I'm mentally okay to do this. All of those things were fine. It took some time, but I, I, you know, I began to lose the weight. I did not lose the hundred pounds, but the nurses that took care of Austin, they would see me coming in and they'd be encouraging. They'd be high-fiving me and you're looking good. You're, don't you think it's time to go back to the doctor and, you know, have him take a look at you? Even though you haven't lost a hundred pounds, you, you look good, you know? And so they had me all hyped up. Ready to go. <laughs> and so I did, I made an appointment with him and, um, Sadly enough, I was humiliated at that appointment. I was very humiliated. The doctor, um, he began to ask me questions. Oh, did you try Weight Watchers? Oh, did you try Jenny Craig? Oh, did you, you know, you haven't lost a hundred pounds, you know, but I'd lost, I'd lost, at that point I had lost 50 pounds and it was very noticeable. I just attributed his lack of bedside manners <laughs> to to the fact that um, he's used to seeing sickly children, you know, small, scrawny children. And I'm an adult and I'm a large woman. And, um, and so, you know, he had me doing things like, you know, bend over, you know, um, having me bend over on, on my side and showing me, okay, well, this is, this is where your incision is going to be. And it's going to be a big gaping hole. That was devastating, you know, to be heard, to be told those things and to hear those things. Um, but I think, I don't know if he was trying to be, use some type of psychology on me. I don't know what he was doing, but it did not work. I left there feeling humiliated because I, I felt like I was doing everything I could to be in the best shape to give my son the kidney. And uh, I was electing to do this. This was not, I knew all the risks. Nothing, none of the risks even mattered to me. I didn't even care. I just wanted, he was dying basically. And I wanted to give him this kidney. I wanted to stop all the madness with his constant in and out of the hospitals. You know, you know, it it was taking him a while to actually have, you know, to develop as a, as a uh, healthy child. It just was hard. So, and I knew he needed this. This was going to, you know, give him a better life. So I ended up having to go with the nurse's suggestion with a second opinion. Find another doctor, get a second opinion. And that's what I did. Clarissa, it's just amazing how much you went through to bring Austin into this world and literally to save his life. When did he become independent with his medication? I would say he became independent with his medication during the time that his transplant failed. He became more aware of what he needed to do. So he kind of stepped up and started being a little bit more totally independent, I should say. But actually, he in his teen years, he started having to take his med- medication, know what they were and all that kind of stuff. But trying to leave it solely up to him, little by little, you know, letting go. Sometimes I think he would fumble the ball. Well, a lot of times I think he would fumble the ball. But early on during the first transplant, in his teen years, and then um, to just totally became independent <laughs> during that uh, when he lost his transplant the first, you know, after the first go round. 
So how long did the transplant um, that you gave him last? The transplant lasted 14, a little over 14 years, just a little over 14 years. 14 years. That's an amazing amount of time. Austin, tell me about the work you're doing to support kids, teens, and young adults with kidney disease. Recently, I was on a panel for the National Kidney Foundation that talked about how to have better care being a pediatric patient for uh, pre and post kidney disease patients uh, with in, in pediatric care. And also, I have recently just joined on to the PFAT Council of Children's National Medical Center, which stands for Patient Family Advisory Council. And, you know, being a two-time kidney transplant recipient, um, I just want to be able to continue to be a voice for those patients who are not very educated or who are not very aware on different resources for kidney disease. Uh, And, you know, Growing up and you're a teenager and you're in high school, those are things you're not really paying attention to until it happens to you, until it suddenly happens to you. And a lot of those times, the reality for a lot of young people, they don't understand what's going on until it's too late. And, you know, being able to be a part of um, a patient family council at Children's National, I feel like I'm able to now have the platform to be able to to help those families to become aware of resources that are out there to help possibly uh, prevent kidney disease, become more aware of it, your different options, and also just being able to continue to advocate with um, the National Kidney Foundation and other organizations throughout the kidney community uh, and and also be on different types of support groups, inviting young people to support groups. And, you know, if if I see something that comes my way, I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of of research on, on different things. You know, I just want to be able to continue to help those young people not just give them the information and say, here, here it is, but how to understand what they are reading. Because um, we're in a time now, a lot of things, uh, you can use social media platforms to your advantage. And I'm, I, and I'm like, you know, if I can help um, the young people in my area or, or younger children and their families and their parents understand, you know, through social media or through a video, um, then, I, then I'm going to do that because that is that is the world that that we are living in. So I'm I'm going to adjust to that to that um, lifestyle that you know we are dealt with um, in these days, and I'm going to help them understand through those ways. Um, and so that is um, how I am continuing to help young patients, help teenagers, uh, infants and toddlers, uh, everyone, any any type of pediatric patient uh, in the in the kidney disease community. That's awesome. It sounds like you are an amazing mentor and people who are following the path that you are blazing are in good, good hands. Tell me two things that you feel is important for other young people on this kidney disease journey to know. To understand that you are unique in your own way and that you are not alone. And just to elaborate on those, don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, just like, you know, in your classroom, how the teacher asks, you know, about don't be afraid to ask questions. Well, don't be afraid to ask 
your your um, healthcare professional um, questions. And if you feel like you need to go to someone who can relate to you um, age appropriately, who because a lot of you know a lot of our social workers, a lot of our child life specialists that are in the medical field, you know they're they're within reasonable age ages that could help a young adult, um, a, a youth person to to understand you know, what they're going through. So when you look at Austin today, after all he's been through, two kidney transplants and two uh, times living on peritoneal dialysis, what do you think and how do you feel? I am so, 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 so very proud. And I'm inspired. Myself, I'm inspired, Uh, you know, He's been able to do so much and give back so much. And he, he's got the greatest and the biggest heart. And it's just, it's amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed, but I'm also um, thankful. I'm thankful to God that, you know, he spared his life, not, you know, several times. And, um, and this is the um, thanks that he's giving back. I, I just, um, I'm amazed. I'm just inspired. I'm hopeful for the lives that he's touched, that they will touch other lives. You know, it's just like something catching on, you know, he can help inspire other people to become better. And um, that's, it's wonderful to watch and wonderful to see all this unfolding and, and him living his dreams and, and, you know, working towards what he wants and what, what he wants to do. And he's doing it. And he is doing an amazing job. I agree with you. I am so proud of Austin as well. Um, Just, watching the advocacy work that he does, the way that he interacts and inspires kids and teens and young adults all over the country um, is truly amazing and something to be proud of. Um, Very proud. Very proud. My last question for you, Clarissa, is what would you say to others who are considering living donation? I would say get educated. Do not be fearful. Learn everything that you can about it. And if you really, if it's really, truly something you want to do, don't give up until you, you've done it. There are so many lives that are just waiting. There's so many people waiting. God blessed us with two kidneys. And there's no reason why, you know, there shouldn't be any hesitation. If that's what you want to do, no hesitation about giving and sharing your extra kidney. Because I, I feel like that's what it's there for. It's to, it's to share. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Clarissa. I'm Monica Fox, and this is the Journey Continues podcast. I'm so inspired by my guest, Clarissa Lee, kidney donor, and her son, amazing kidney patient advocate, Austin, and the work that they are both doing together in this um, kidney community. If you want to learn more about living kidney donation, or programs available for kids and teens with kidney disease, check out our website at www.nkfi.org. And if you want to learn more about Austin and the work he's doing, you can find him on Facebook, Austin Lee. At the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois, we believe that prevention is the key. That's why at the end of every episode, you will hear a health or nutrition tip. Here's Dr. Melissa Prest. Here's today's nutrition tip about vitamin D. Vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin, meaning it's stored in fat in the body. 
You may have heard vitamin D called the sunshine vitamin because we can get it from exposure to the sun. But we can also get vitamin D from the foods that we eat. The best sources of vitamin D are fatty fish like salmon and tuna and foods fortified with vitamin D like milk. Vitamin D is also present in small amounts in beef liver, cheese, egg yolks, and mushrooms. Vitamin D plays many roles in the body, including promoting calcium absorption in the gut and maintaining enough blood calcium and phosphate concentrations to allow for normal bone development. Without enough vitamin D, bones may become thin, brittle, and misshaped. Calcium plus vitamin D helps to protect, protect older adults from osteoporosis, which is a disease that causes bones to become weak and brittle, making them easy to break. Many people are at risk for vitamin D deficiency, including people living with chronic kidney disease. This is because your kidneys play an important role in how your body activates vitamin D from sun exposure and the foods we eat. If your kidneys are not healthy, then you may have low levels of vitamin D in your blood. It's important to have your vitamin D levels checked by your healthcare provider and be treated if they are low. With today's nutrition tip, I'm Melissa Press, a registered dietitian nutritionist and the foundation dietitian for the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois. The Journey Continues is brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois and sponsored by Donate Life Illinois. To learn more about kidney disease and living donation, visit www.nkfi.org. To register to become an eye, tissue, and organ donor, visit lifegoeson.com. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please subscribe to and leave a review for The Journey Continues in Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. This podcast is produced by Rivet. To hear more great podcasts, visit rivet360.com.